On Wednesday, Michael Harriet of TheRoot.com ran a shocking piece titled Everything You Think You Know About the Death of Mike Brown is Wrong, and the Man Who Killed Him Admits It. Provocative. Sally Cohn of CNN, she of Hands Up, Don't Shoot fame, tweeted out the article with this caption. We all need to read and reckon with how our media, courts, everything, believed white cops' lies over black kids' truth. All of which means that you'd think the article would actually substantiate the headline. After all, most people think Michael Brown attacked a police officer, Darren Wilson, inside his vehicle after being pulled over, then tried to grab the officer's gun, then ran when a shot was fired in the car before turning around, charging the cop, and being shot. That's what all the witness testimony said. Repeatedly. From black witnesses. So what did Officer Wilson say that changed everything? According to TheRoot.com, reporting on a court document originally obtained by Wesley Lowry of The Washington Post, a guy who, by the way, reported in laudatory terms about the unrest in Ferguson at the time, Wilson stated that he reached through the window of his car and grabbed for Brown's body during the encounter. Of course, Wilson never said anything different. He always maintained Brown punched him in the face, at which point he grabbed at Brown as Brown leaned into the car. He pulled his gun. Brown attempted to grab his gun. He fired his gun, and the rest of the events ensued. But here's how The Root describes the events. Two men are walking down the street. A cop pulls in front of them, blocking their path. Instead of calling for backup or radioing in a traffic stop, he opens his car door, and either Brown closes it or it ricochets off of Brown's body. The officer then chooses to reach through his window and grab the suspect by his arm and body. Wilson had a gun, and Brown is hanging inside the car. Brown does not reach for the officer's gun, and the cop admits that Brown's only weapon was his big, scary black self. The next part of the testimony will confound the conservatives who stated that Wilson did not shoot Brown in the back. Wilson admits that after the first shot, Brown started running away from from him, and he fired another shot, which missed Brown. Wilson basically admits that he fired at Brown and the bullet hitting a bu- hit a building close by. Then, the root alleges that Wilson admits to having used the N-word. Other headlines have repeated this. They neglect to mention that Wilson explicitly says he only used the N-word in, or in order to repeat a, quote, racist remark made by someone else, but I have not made a racist remark against another individual while on duty as a police officer, unquote. Oops. But what about the rest of this narrative? It's just not true. Wilson doesn't admit any of the things The Root says he admits, as Wesley Lowry himself tweeted. Here's what Lowry tweeted. There are unanswered Ferguson questions, but a lot of assertions in this piece going viral today based on the doc I reported yesterday are wrong. The court documents reveal none of these things. Wilson is asked specific questions. He's not asked others. Can't infer entire narrative by filling in the blanks based on things he's not asked. Wilson admits that Brown did not try to remove your gun from your holster. This is not the same as admitting Brown never reached for the gun. Nowhere in this doc document does Wilson address who initiated contact. Admits at some point he reached through the window. Doesn't address the timeline. There is nothing I've seen in December 28th admissions from Darren Wilson that materially alters and contradicts his previous version of the story. Lowry is honest and reports this correctly. I've read the entire document. It is clear that The Root and by proxy Sally Cohn are confabulating Wilson's testimony into a story of their own making, a narrative repeatedly debunked by third-party witnesses and the Department of Justice itself, which found no wrongdoing by Wilson. This is how leftist narratives spread. And there will be violence spurred on by such narratives because the hard left likes its riots just so long as the riots are aimed at the establishment, meaning in this case, the cops. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. Oh, well, today is mailbag day, and so that's very exciting. We'll be doing that a little bit later, which is why you need to become a subscriber over at dailywire.com. We're also going to be talking, I'm going to break down this awful, awful court decision from a judge in, a federal district judge in Hawaii, striking down or at least putting a temporary hold on Donald Trump's executive, President Trump's executive order on immigration and refugees. I will break that down for you. Awful, awful decision. I mean, I, I read the decision twice because it's so bad that it took twice just to comprehend all the stupidity inherent in it. But first, we 
have to say thank you to our friends and sponsors over at Lyft. So, if you need to go somewhere and you're looking for the best ride-sharing app there is, Lyft is it. And if you've tried Lyft, you know what I mean. It's high-quality drivers. All the cars are new. They show up in three and a half minutes on average. Every Lyft driver is fully vetted through a 10-point safety standard, including criminal and DMV background checks. You know you're going to get around quickly and safely. We use Lyft all the time in my family. I use it. My wife uses it. More important to me that my wife uses it because sometimes she's coming home late from the hospital. She's really tired. And as a young and beautiful woman, it is important to me that my wife is picked up by people who I know that I can trust with safety. And same thing for her. And that's why she uses Lyft. You can also tip in the app, which means that the drivers are happier. Nine out of ten Lyft rides get a perfect five-star rating from the passenger. It's a better all-around experience. The quality is really, really high. And right now, if you download the Lyft app and you use promo code Shapiro, you get up to three free rides. You get three free rides up to $10 each, a $30 value when you enter promo code Shapiro. So go download the app right now, the Lyft app, L-Y-F-T, Lyft, promo code Shapiro. And again, you get a $30 value, three free rides up to $10 each, promo code Shapiro. And uh, it is the best ride-sharing app there is, Lyft, and we thank them for being our sponsors. Obviously, use that promo code Shapiro in order to get the discount and also to let them know that we're the ones who sent you. Okay, so the one, one of the worst judicial decisions in recent memory came out yesterday from a district court judge in Hawaii, and he struck down Donald Trump's revised executive order. Now, we didn't really talk too much about Donald Trump's revised executive order because basically what the revised executive order on immigration and refugees did is it got rid of a lot of the things that the Ninth Circuit objected to and the federal district district court in Washington objected to originally in the first executive order. So first things first, the first executive order was fully constitutional and it was fully legal, but the court struck it down anyway. They said that it affected green card holders, which was a problem. They said that it was religiously discriminatory, which really shouldn't have been a problem, but they said it was. So the new version got rid of all language with regard to Islam and Christianity. The new version got rid of its application to green card holders. The new version broadened the ability for the Secretary of State to grant admission to people on the basis of exceptions to the rules set up. It's a, it's a facially neutral statute, meaning it has no differentiation between Muslims and anybody else. That didn't stop the court. So this federal district judge basically decides, and this is basically what the decision comes down to. It's an amazing thing. The decision comes down to, I don't like Donald Trump, therefore the executive order is bad. And that is not much of a simplification. The entire decision rests on the idea that he's not actually going to read the verbiage, not going to read the actual wording of the executive order. Instead, they're just going to look at stuff that Donald Trump has said over the past two years and say, look, it looks like Donald Trump doesn't like Muslims. Therefore, even though this particular executive order doesn't discriminate against Muslims, even though this particular executive order only applies to people from six of the most terror-rich countries on earth, originally named by Barack Obama, we're still going to impute to Donald Trump some sort of nefarious motive to ban Muslims because he doesn't like Muslims. So, in other words, we're not going to look at the law. We're going to look at what they said about the law. And not even what they said about this law. We're going to look at what he said a year ago about different stuff. And now, if the courts had held this about Obamacare, Obamacare would have been struck down, obviously. Obamacare should have been struck down anyway because Obama was telling the truth when he said Obamacare was not a tax, it was a fee. But the courts specifically ignored Obamacare being a fee and not a tax in order to rewrite the statute and protect Obamacare. So they ignored everything Obama said in order to ensure that Barack Obama's signature law remained law. In this case, they're taking something that is obviously and perfectly legal, and they are saying that it is now illegal because they don't like what Donald Trump said. So let's go through some of the dumber things about this decision, and it is demonstrative of the fact that Congress needs to crack down on the jurisdiction of federal courts. Federal courts should not have this type of jurisdiction. 
the Ninth Circuit should be broken up as a, as a as a circuit court of appeals. This is a long-standing opinion of mine. This is not something that is brought about by this particular decision. I wrote my entire third-year law paper at Harvard Law, which I've been attempting to dig up for a while now. Uh, I wrote the entire thing on why judicial review is a constitutional error uh, and why it actually has nothing to do with the Constitution of the United States. That said. This decision is perfect evidence of why you cannot have a group of judges who think they are an oligarchic super legislature. They think they're lawmakers. They're not lawmakers. So what does this actual decision say? Well, first, it says that the Constitution bars religious discrimination against foreigners. It says the Establishment Clause applies to people who don't even live in the country. Not, uh, it doesn't apply to American citizens alone. It applies to some random dude on a hilltop in Yemen. So, in other words, if you have a policy that says random dude on a hilltop in Yemen, we're not letting you in because you are a radical Muslim, they say, well, this would violate the Establishment Clause because you obviously prefer Christians to Muslims. This is asinine. First of all, the, the provisions of the Constitution do not apply to foreigners. The Constitution only applies to people who are citizens of the United States. It does not apply to people who are living any random place in the world. If the Constitution has to grant rights to people to immigrate, Regardless of religion, regardless of viewpoint, like imagine this, okay? The First Amendment of the Constitution also says you have freedom of speech, it says you have freedom of religion, and it has the Establishment Clause that government cannot establish religion. So, let's say the Constitution were to apply to people all over the world, and now it applies to everyone. Well, the First Amendment also says you have freedom of speech. So, that means that presumably that applies to anybody abroad. And those people, we can't discriminate against them based on viewpoint, right? The government is not allowed viewpoint discrimination against you or me. It can't shut me down because of what I'm saying. If we took the same logic that this court is applying to the Establishment Clause and applied it to the Free Speech Clause, what you'd end up with is anyone anywhere on earth has a right to enter the United States no matter what they think about things. Okay, that's how crazy this court decision is. Other things that this decision says. As I say, the court actually says that motivation matters, not text. They explicitly acknowledge, explicitly acknowledge that there is nothing in this executive order that discriminates against Muslims. They then try to make the claim that it discriminates against Muslims, even though it clearly does not discriminate against all Muslims. So the court says, the logic of the government's contentions is palpable. The notion that one can demonstrate animus toward any group of people only by targeting all of them at once is fundamentally flawed. Okay, that doesn't make any sense at all. If you're demonstrating animus for a group of people, obviously you have to demonstrate animus for the entire group of people. If I have a law and it only affects a certain percentage of black people, but it doesn't affect 99% of black people, it's very difficult to say that the law is actually motivated by animus against black people. That seems relatively logical to me. And in fact, the court then goes on to make exactly the same case that they're saying is illogical. Right? They then say this is obviously a Muslim ban because it applies to countries that are largely Muslim. Okay, you can't make a statistical argument like that if you're just claiming that statistical arguments are irrelevant to the question of animus. They quote Donald Trump from March 2016 saying, I think Islam hates us. Okay, March 2016, he was still a candidate. He wasn't even president then. They quote Trump's infamous Muslim ban press release from late 2015, and they say all of this is the backdrop to this executive order, and then they say that because Donald Trump says mean things about the Muslims, that means that the executive order is illegal. And then they quote the Tenth Circuit, on this issue. And here's what they say. They basically say that maybe at some future point he could pass the exact same executive order and we wouldn't strike it down. We wouldn't put a temporary restraining order on it because we would we would know that he actually is not a mean guy. So now they're judging Trump as a person. He's a mean guy, right? This is what they say. From the above principles, we conclude that a government cure should be one, purposeful, two, public, and three, at least as persuasive as the initial endorsement of religion. It should be purposeful enough for an objective observer to know unequivocally that the government does not endorse religion. 
So, in other words, if Donald Trump spends the next two years talking about how Islam is just awesome, then they might allow him to pursue this executive order. But until then, until he goes out and says publicly that Islam is the best religion that ever was, and he loves Islam like no other, that it is a big league in his own words, until he actually does that, they are going to ban this executive order. So they're going to mind read Donald Trump, which is a challenging thing under any circumstances. It's particularly stupid when the people attempting to mind read Trump are obviously not mind reading Trump. They are mind reading themselves in their perceptions about Trump. Okay, other things that are idiotic about this decision. So they reinforce in this decision this notion pushed by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals and that federal district judge in Washington that a state is able to sue and get immigration policy held up if it doesn't benefit the state to have more immigration. So the state said one of the big issues in in lawyering is something called standing. I can't sue the government based on some random law that doesn't affect me. I can't sue Mathis today based on the fact that I get food poisoning from a separate restaurant. I don't have standing because Mathis hasn't done me any harm, right? You have to standing means that the person you're suing has some connection with the harm that is that is being inflicted upon you. So what the court does here is they broaden the issue of standing because, really, the state doesn't have any standing to sue the federal government based on immigration policy. They don't. If they could, then presumably the state of Arizona could have sued the federal government long ago for not enforcing its immigration laws affecting the state of Arizona in negative ways. They weren't able to. But now the court finds standing to open the borders. Why? Because universities in states like Hawaii won't be able to recruit that dude on the hilltop in Yemen. Seriously, this is what it says. It says the state has preliminarily demonstrated that its universities will suffer monetary damages and intangible harms. So now we are now measuring the state standing based on intangible harms, things that can't be measured or felt. Okay, that's totally insane as well. And then finally, I think that the, the most insane here, the most insane thing here of all, I'll tell you in one second. But first, I have to say thank you to our advertisers over at CISO. So they have a new series out that's actually really, really funny. It's called Shrink, and it's about a guy who's $500,000 in debt after going to med school. And uh, instead of actually starting a real practice, he starts conducting free therapy sessions for patients that he finds on Craigslist. And the series is, is really, really funny. Uh, you should go check it out right now. It's critically acclaimed. You can watch the trailer uh, over at YouTube. The series is called Shrimp, but you can only do that. You can only actually watch the series if you subscribe to CISO. So CISO is your one-stop shop for all comedy. CISO has backlogs of The Office. Uh, it uh, has backlogs of Parks and Rec. It has backlogs of all the British comedies like The Office and, and, uh, and all of Monty Python. It has all the late-night shows. Uh, we're going to play some late-night later. Some of the late-night is getting really good now, actually. So go to CISO.com and subscribe. It's just $3.99 per month. No joke. And it has all the comedy that you would ever want. CISO.com, S-E-E-S-O.com. And you get one month free if you use promo code Ben. So you can try it out risk-free. See if you like it. CISO.com, promo code Ben. My wife and I really, really do enjoy CISO. We watch it almost every night because uh, it is hilarious. And the, and the amount of comedy content is astounding. They have the entire backlog of Saturday Night Live going back to the days when it didn't suck. And so go and check it out right now. CISO.com and become a subscriber for three ninety nine dollars per month. And you can access their content from everything, including Amazon Fire and Apple TV or, or Android or iOS. You, you can get it anywhere. So check it out. CISO.com. And remember, use that promo code Ben at checkout so that you can, number one, signal that you listen to the show, and number two, uh, so that you can actually get that one month for free and see if you like it. Okay, so the stupidest thing of all about this uh, about this ruling, well, I should say the second stupidest thing. The stupidest thing is this whole feelings routine, this, this routine that 
Donald Trump's feelings about Islam shape how the court rules on an executive order. I'll tell you the reason that that's the stupidest thing. The reason that's the stupidest thing is if people can now sue the president of the United States and say that he is violating the establishment clause simply because he has, quote unquote, animus for some group outside the United States that violates the establishment clause, then you could theoretically have somebody sue Trump to stop him from pursuing military action against like Al Qaeda and ISIS because he doesn't really hate Al Qaeda and ISIS. He hates all of Islam, right? They could use exactly the same logic they're using right now on immigration. The logic they're using on immigration, Trump says, I want to stop al-Qaeda, I want to stop ISIS, I want to stop terrorists from coming into the country. And they say, no, what you really mean is you hate Muslims. Why couldn't you use that exact same logic with regard to what he's doing in war? Why couldn't you say, well, what he really means is he doesn't hate al-Qaeda or ISIS, he hates all Muslims. He wants a war with Islam. And that means I'm going to sue him because the Establishment Clause doesn't allow him to make policy that discriminates based on religion. Okay, this is crazy talk. The stupidest thing, however, is this, uh, is, is the second stupidest thing in this ruling, however, is the granting of standing to the plaintiff, a guy named Dr. Ismail El-Sheikh. Okay, Dr. El-Sheikh is an American citizen of Egyptian descent. There are two issues that make him not ripe for standing here, that don't grant him standing in this case. One, he's an American citizen. The executive order does not apply to American citizens. Two, he's from Egypt. It doesn't apply to Egyptians. Egypt is not one of the countries on the list. So there are two separate reasons why. So number one, he's an American citizen. It doesn't apply to him. Two, even if it didn't apply to American citizens, it still wouldn't apply to him because he's from Egypt. So who does it apply to? He's suing because his mother-in-law is from Syria and she wants to come visit. Seriously. His mother, first of all, this alone should, should mean that he never gets standing because no one wants their mother-in-law to visit. But second of all, the idea that he's getting standing based on his mother-in-law living in Syria is insane. How does the court come up with the idea of standing? They say he has standing because this is a direct quote. He thinks that the executive order is devastating to me, my wife and children, since it saddened him. I am not making that up. That is in the court decision. The court decision says that this guy has standing to sue the federal government because the policy of the federal government made him sad. Okay, I am now going to sue the federal government for every law and regulation it has passed in the last 20 years because they all make me sad because they all suck. It doesn't work that way. This is not how law works. This is a usurpacious court. This is a court that is usurping, obviously, the power of the, of the presidency. And uh, it's about time for Congress to step in and do something about it, because this is fully crazy. This is fully crazy. We'll talk more about that. We'll also do the mailbag. But in order for you to do, do that and see that, you're going to have to go over to dailywire.com and become a subscriber. If you go over to dailywire.com, eight bucks a month allows you access to watch the rest of the podcast live and in living color. You can become part of the mailbag, too. You don't get your, an- your questions answered unless you are one of the members of our special, special coterie of geniuses. And uh, you only become part of that coterie. You only get your special decoder badge when you go to Decoder Ring, when you go to dailywire.com and you become a subscriber for $8 a month. You can become an annual subscriber as well. Right now, we are giving out copies of the Runaway Bestseller, Reasons to Vote Democrat by Michael Knowles. Uh, this, is the, this is the book that is soaring. Uh, it's still number one on Amazon. It's been number one on Amazon for a week and a half, and it is literally a blank book of pages. But you get a free copy of it uh, because it is, it is hilarious, I did, and I will take partial credit 
because I put my quote on the front that says thorough. In any case, you can get a free copy of that when you become an annual subscriber, and uh, and Michael will sign it for you. He'll be happy to sign it for you since he obviously has nothing better to do like write actual books. So go over to dailywire.com right now and become an annual subscriber. You get that for free. Plus, I promise, I keep saying this, the Shapiro store is coming. There will be discounts for subscribers, and you can go and check that out over at dailywire.com or later listen to the rest of the show at iTunes and SoundCloud and leave a rating over at iTunes. We are the top conservative podcast in the nation. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit more about what Congress can do here. So Congress has the power under Article 1 of the Constitution to set up or dismantle federal district courts to limit their jurisdiction, uh, to limit their power of judicial review. They should do this. And the reason I've said this, this, this sort of stuff scares people. When you say the courts should not have the power of judicial review, everybody goes, ooh, that's scary because the courts protect us. No, they don't. The courts don't protect you. First of all, when the court makes a good decision, it still requires the executive to implement it. For example, in 1955, Brown versus Board of Education. Good decision, right? It says segregation is bad. Does segregation end? No, segregation doesn't even really begin to end until 1964 with the Civil Rights Act. So it took the legislature to actually do it. I'll tell you a case where the, where the court really did do some damage, cases like Dred Scott or Roe v. Wade, where they strike down properly enacted laws, uh, and, uh, and then they, uh, or, or they, or they announce with their, with their insane wisdom, as in Dred Scott, that black people aren't actually people, which is crazy, right? The, the court has done enormous damage over time, but it very rarely does something that's actually good. The court rarely does something that is useful or good. It takes legislatures to actually do that. And the Constitution, if you actually read it, doesn't actually give the federal courts the power of judicial review. It doesn't even give the Supreme Court the power of judicial review. If you look at Article 3 of the Constitution, I want to find the exact section right now. It talks about the power of the, the judicial power of the United States vested in one Supreme Court. And it says the judicial power, this is the clause at issue, the judicial power shall extend to all cases in law and equity arising under this Constitution, the laws of the United States, and treaties made or which shall be made under their authority. Okay, that's the entire thing. That's the entire thing. Does it say anywhere in there that the, that the judiciary has the power to take laws of the United States, hold them up against the Constitution, and determine what the Constitution says? No, it doesn't, actually. It says what it means is that the court has the ability to look at cases that arise under the Constitution. Exactly what it says, arise under the Constitution, the laws of the U.S., and under treaties. Okay, but it doesn't actually say that they have the power to overrule the legislature in the name of the Constitution. Nowhere does it say that. Marbury versus Madison was a judicial irrigation of power. You may like it. You may think that it was a good decision. I personally don't. A lot of legal scholars don't. Uh, Marbury versus Madison is a very controversial decision, remains so in legal circles. The reason for that is that it destroys the constitutional structure. Remember, originally it was this. The judiciary was able to interpret the Constitution how it saw fit, but it didn't have the power of enforcement, and it didn't have the power to overrule the legislature. The legislature was able to interpret the Constitution how it saw fit, but the president could always veto and stop it. The president was able to interpret the Constitution how he saw fit, but he could have his powers taken away by Congress or by the courts. Right? So the fact is that the idea that the courts were supposed to have this sort of final power to decide what was good and what was bad, that defeats the constitutional structure, because why have a president at all? Why have a legislature at all? If the courts are the wise ones who get to decide what the Constitution says, why not just make them the kings and they can determine all of our policy? And that's basically what's happening today. So it's incumbent on Congress to take back its legislative power. I'd like to see Congress do that as soon as possible, because this is, a really, uh, this is really an irrigation of power that is that it's not unprecedented, but it is close to unprecedented. Okay, meanwhile, 
the uh, the controversy over Trump Care continues to unfold. Uh, it, it's pretty clear at this point that they're going to have to make some changes to Trump Care if they want this thing to pass. The right is unsatisfied with it, so it won't pass the House. The left is unsatisfied with it because it doesn't provide coverage, quote unquote, to enough people. It's it's really unclear they're going to be able to get a majority together on this thing because. On the one hand, the right is saying this thing costs too much money. You're setting up a new entitlement. And on the left, people are saying, well, it doesn't cover enough people. Probably the smart way to do this if Ryan wants to pass something is to move to the right in the House bill, let the Senate pass its own version of the bill, and then put something together in reconciliation because nobody pays attention during reconciliation. And that's when they put all the crap back in the bill. But is this thing going to pass? You know, not clear at all. And there will be ramifications if it does pass. And then a bunch of people, quote unquote, lose their health insurance because of it. Joe Manchin, Democrat from West Virginia, he says that if this thing passes and and, and some people lose their, their Medicaid coverage, for example, then people are going to blame the Republicans. Over 70 percent of the people that probably benefited from the expansion, from the uh, subsidies, uh, for all the things that we're doing, whether you're addicted and we got now recovery places or treatment centers, those people don't know how they got these services. They really don't. They just think it's expansion of government, if you will. They didn't know it was the Democrats. They didn't mm -hmm. know it was President Obama. They had no idea. But let me tell you, Mr. President, they're going to know who took it away from them. They will know if they lose it. So you ought to try to repair and he's, it. And he's right to the extent that, you know, once an entitlement is put in place, and this is why it was important to kill Obamacare earlier, once an entitlement is put in place, once it is vested, once people feel entitled to things, it is very difficult to remove funding from them, which is why all of the budget deficit talk about how this bill, this Trump care bill, will save America from budget deficits, a lot of that is overstated. Because if you think Congress is going to continue to just do $10 billion block grants and not increase it as the states complain and as people continue to vote Democrat because they want more stuff, uh, then you're wrong. There's not an entitlement program in the history of the United States that has shrunk over time or been disestablished. That's why if you're going to kill it, you got to kill it now and you have one shot at it right now. Because the next step, obviously, is nationalized health care. And you can see that both sides of the aisle are moving toward it pretty quickly. Paul Ryan is saying this is the best we can do. It's repeal and replace or bust. There, is not, there are not the votes for repeal, which just demonstrates, by the way, when he says this, there are not the votes for repeal. It just demonstrates what liars the, the members of the Republican Party are. They all promised individually to their own constituents that they would repeal Obamacare. And then the minute that they have the chance to actually repeal the thing, instead they say, no, we're not going to do that unless we get a replacement plan that re-enshrines half of Obamacare and, and you know, spends a lot more money over time than would otherwise be the case. Here is Paul Ryan, however, trying to cram this thing down. So first of all, we don't have the votes for just a full repeal because so many of our members, and the president included, said repeal and replace. And if we just did a repeal with reconciliation, meaning 51 votes, and not replace, then we wouldn't be able to get a replace passed because they can filibuster a replace. So the promise that was made to voters by everybody running for House, Senate, and President was we will repeal and replace. And so we're using the budget tools that we have in the Senate to do repeal and replace. Remember, Maria, this is why we have a three-part process. If we could put everything we wanted into this one bill and have it vote on with 51 votes in the Senate, we would do that. But because of the Senate rules and how narrow they are to do what we call reconciliation, you can't put everything you want in that bill, like, say, interstate shopping across state lines. So first of all, you actually can do all of those things. All you have to do is appeal the ruling to, the, to, to Mike Pence, who would be uh, the Senate chair on this sort of issue, uh, and, uh, and he would rule in favor of the Republicans, and you can do whatever you want. So this is kind of a, this is kind of a lie. So what will happen if this thing goes down in flames? Charles Krauthammer says that the person who will be damaged the most is Trump if Obamacare is if, if the Obamacare replacement is stopped. 
Look, it'll all depend on what the conservatives in the Freedom Caucus decide. They're the ones who can take it down if they do. The injury to the Republicans and to the Trump presidency is going to be incalculable. In the end, they have to get it through the House. Okay, the the idea that it's going to hurt Trump that much is a lie. Trump is going to be fine. Trump will just blame the Congress. He'll blame the Republicans. He'll blame blame the the wussy Republicans who wouldn't vote with him. He'll say, I did my best to get rid of this thing. And my own Republican Party stabbed me in the back. The establishment led by Paul Ryan stabbed me in the back. And Steve Bannon will sit sit in back of Trump just chortling the whole time. And that's how this thing will go. Um, It's not going to damage Trump. It'll damage the Republicans. because and, And it should damage the Republicans. It should also damage Trump because they've been making a bunch of promises that they weren't willing to actually follow up on. They were not willing to repeal. If you're not willing to repeal, don't lie to the American public and say that you are willing to repeal. And the idea that this is going to damage Trump, I just I, I disagree with that on a, in a major way. And the idea that the alternative is to let Obamacare collapse, it's not going to collapse. It's just going to go badly in terms of rising premiums, at which point they call for more government intervention, not less. Meanwhile, I think that what will hurt Trump is sort of this continued hubbub where he says things that are silly and then announces that there will be investigations and then there are no investigations. It just hurts his credibility. It doesn't help him. If you want Trump to have a successful presidency, then you actually want him to start telling the truth more often and being more exact in his language. And that's, you know, again, just if you want, whether you want Trump to be good or whether you don't trust Trump, truth would be a, a, an object, I think, worth pursuing here. Before we discuss what Trump did wrong on this score last night on Tucker Carlson's show, we have to say thank you to our friends over at preparewithben.com. This is my Patriot Supply, preparewithben.com. Right now, if you are concerned about natural disaster or you are concerned about some sort of, of attack, a terrorist attack or, or attack by foreign military, North Korea is threatening to fire nukes at the United States, whatever it is, if you are scared of, of any sort of natural disaster or man-made disaster, you obviously need to have enough food in your house to last you a few weeks in case things go badly. And we've seen this in the United States repeatedly, where there's some sort of natural disaster and the government is not able to help people for weeks on end. And people are forced to rely on the things that they're able to, to get. And when they go to the grocery store, the grocery store is already completely empty. This is why you need to contact my friends over at My Patriot Supply. It's preparewithben.com, preparewithben.com. And that gets you a four-week emergency food supply preparewithben.com. It's 99 bucks plus free shipping. And my team tells me that the meals taste really, really good. Check it out. 888-803-1413. 888-803-1413. Preparewithben.com. You can check it out right now. Preparewithben.com. And it's a four-week emergency food supply. And that makes sure that you are set. You know, you put it in your garage and you forget about it until the time that you actually need it. And then when you need it, then it's there. That's why my Patriot Supply is doing good, good work here. Preparewithben.com, 99 bucks plus free shipping. It's a four-week emergency food supply. Okay, so here's what I'm saying about Donald Trump threatening his own credibility. So I don't think that if Trump care goes down in flames, he's the chief. He's the, he's the one who pays chiefly. I think that he can always just do what he probably has wanted to do all along, cross the aisle, work with Democrats, and do a bunch of big government things that make him more popular personally, be the Bill Clinton of the right, so to speak. The stuff that will hurt him, however, is his continued non-credibility. So Trump was on with Tucker Carlson last night, and uh, Tucker Carlson asked him specifically, you know, you claim that that Obama wiretapped you. Uh, Do you have any evidence of that at all? Here's Trump's answer. It was the president's response. But wiretap covers a lot of different things. I think you're going to find some very interesting items coming to the forefront over the next two weeks. Okay, um, I'm, I, I love the forward teases. You know, I really do enjoy the, the idea that he's going to tease us two weeks from now. But if he already knows, why isn't he revealing it? 
If there's an investigation that's going to be launched, why has nobody been talking about it? You know, the members of Congress are saying there is no evidence of wiretapping at Trump Tower, and yet here is Trump out there saying that in the next two weeks I'm going to reveal all this. Again, every time Trump says in the next two weeks I'm going to reveal something, it never gets revealed in the next two weeks. And that's not good for his credibility. It's just not good for his credibility. Meanwhile, the credibility of the right media is not wonderful at this point either, because there are a lot of members of the right media who are basically willing to go along with the Trump program no matter what. So Tucker Carlson, who you know, he can be really good. He can also be not so good. Here is not so good Tucker Carlson talking about NBC and, and meddling in the election. What he's about to say is half true. Complaints from NBC about election meddling? Given that company's conduct over the past six months, that is a bit rich. Consider the infamous Access Hollywood tape. Now, if you were living in America last fall, you certainly remember it. The shocking and vulgar remarks, the immediate and disastrous effect that tape had on candidate Trump's poll numbers. It was a political bomb detonated in the final days of the most intense political race of our lifetimes. That tape belonged to NBC. It was shot by NBC cameramen for an NBC show on NBC property. So how did it wind up in the hands of the Washington Post, which broke the story? According to sources at NBC, the Access Hollywood tape was leaked to the Washington Post with the full knowledge of NBC brass. That would include news division head Andrew Lack. NBC's motive? To derail the Trump campaign two days before a presidential debate. But as November approached, the temptation to shut down the Trump campaign became too much. And so NBC rose the defense of Hillary Clinton and leaked that tape. And then they lied about it. And yet, as far as we can tell, NBC News has never conducted a meaningful internal investigation into how that tape wound up at the Washington Post. That's because they already knew the identity of the leaker. It was them. Still, the obvious question hangs in the air since we've been talking so much lately about election tampering, and it's this. What do you think played a bigger role in the 2016 race? The Access Hollywood tape or the Russian government? That's an obvious so, one. Here's, here's the one. Okay, so here's the one part where it goes off the rails. The whole time I'm like, yeah, I'm with you, Tucker. I'm with you. And then at the very end, he has to say, well, the Russian, the Russian election meddling means nothing. This is where you lose credibility, because here's the reality. The Russian election meddling meant something. Okay, the WikiLeaks stuff did mean something. We were talking about it every day. Donald Trump was on the campaign trail every day, citing WikiLeaks, talking about how he wanted Vladimir Putin to hack Hillary Clinton's emails. Two things can be true at once. NBC could have been meddling in the election, and so could Russia. But the problem is that for the right, it's always binary. And it's not always binary, gang. It just isn't. Okay, time for some things I like and then some things that I hate. So, uh, things I like. We've been doing plays and, uh, and a great American plays. Uh, probably the greatest American play, it's either between this or Streetcar Named Desire, is Death of a Salesman by Arthur Miller. Uh, Arthur Miller is very often incredibly heavy-handed, but... Death of a Salesman is uh, is him at his least heavy-handed. Uh, it's still, you, you, if you want to see a lot of the motives that are driving the Trump movement, actually, you can watch Death of a Salesman, and it sort of explains it. The the idea of the breakdown of the family, uh, the, the breadwinner who can no longer win bread for his family, and he's depressed and upset about it. Um, and uh, here's a little bit of the, of the production with uh, John Malkovich and Dustin Hoffman. Why am I always being contradicted? Well, I wanted it to be a surprise. Why don't you open a window in here, for God's oh, sake? Open Wait, they boxed us in here. Bricks and windows, windows and bricks. Well, we should have bought the land next door. The street is lined with cars. There's not a breath of fresh air in the neighborhood. The grass don't grow anymore. You can't raise a carrot in the backyard. They should have had a law against apartment houses. Remember those two beautiful elm trees out there when I and Biff hung the, uh, the swing between them? Huh? Like being a million miles from oh, the city. Oh, they should have arrested the villa for cutting those down. They massacred the neighborhood. 
one more thing of those days, man. This this time of year, it was lilacs and wisteria, and then the the, the peonies would come out. Daffodils. What fragrance in this room? Well, people had to move somewhere. No, there's more people now. No, I don't think there's more. There's more people. That's what's ruining this country. Population is getting out of control. The competition is maddening. Smell the stink from that apartment house, and another on the other side. Okay, so you know this is it's it's this has been something that's been boiling in America for a long time. Is this disaffected group of people who feel left behind by the modern economy? That doesn't mean that they're right. Okay, Arthur Miller was actually a socialist, and it's important to recognize that a lot of the motivating factors behind what's going on from Trump and also from Bernie Sanders, this idea that government is going to take care of you, that government is going to come in and stop the wheels of of capitalism and save your job and save your neighborhood, it's just not true. In America, it's a free country, and it's up. To you to save yourself. That doesn't mean that everybody can succeed in saving themselves, unfortunately, and that's why we as a community need to get together in the private sphere and help people who can. I don't think that's up to government either. I think it's up to us. But this this is a, a visceral look at a phenomenon that has obviously grown and metastasized over time in some pretty negative ways. Um, you know, Again, Trump is not the same as Bernie Sanders, but there's a lot to the idea that there's this disaffected population of people who feel left behind uh, by the by the system as it grows. Okay, other things that I like. So I have to hand it to Stephen Colbert. Normally, I'm not a Stephen Colbert fan. I've mocked him multiple times. Stephen Colbert did a fantastic, fantastic segment last night in which he mocked the living crap out of Rachel Maddow. Um, he was making fun of Rachel Maddow's you know, big routine where she supposedly uh, was going to break Donald Trump's tax returns. He was going to finish Trump. It was the silver bullet. And here's Colbert making fun of her. It's actually really, really good. I hold in my hand something very significant. It is a joke. <laughs> a joke that we have confirmed has been heard by Donald Trump. We believe this is the first time any joke connected with Donald Trump has been released. This is an old joke from before he was president. We've obtained this joke legally. The First Amendment gives us the right to tell this joke. This, this piece of paper I hold in my hand, the part facing me with the words that you can't see, this is the document with the joke. The joke in question. Why did the chicken... The first word on chickens. Chickens are flightless birds domesticated 3,000 years ago in Mesopotamia. They produce both meat and eggs, as well as companionship. They are eaten by people. People like Russian oligarch Dmitry Ribliovliev. Riboflavin. Ramalamadingdong. Rumborubborutro. He's a Russian... Confirmed ties to chickens. More on that later when I discuss it with this chicken expert. (laughs) But back to the joke. Why did the chicken cross the road? Okay, what are roads? Why do we need them? Do tax dollars pay for roads? They do. (laughs) What can be a road? Is it a highway? Is it a road? Is it a track? A via? A tollway? A thoroughfare or a public way traveled by foot, cart, car, truck, bus, bicycle, and of course, other. And where is this road crossing chicken going? Mar-a-Lago? Is it going to Russia to be chicken Kiev? 
These are important <laughs> questions. Okay, so it's, it's really good. Answering. It just shows you that what Colbert does is not what Colbert should actually be doing for a living, right? So Colbert doing the late night hosting gig, like he's like he's Letterman or like he's Leno, it's actually really stupid. What he should be doing, because he's great at this, is this is a dead-on Rachel Maddow impersonation with the hand motions and the broken, I'm midst of the train of thought. I'm just reminded of things that just that just occurred to me. Right? It's, it's just, it's, it's perfect. He's right on here. He did it to O'Reilly, and it was really effective when he was at Comedy Central. That's what he should be doing for a living, not the thing he's currently doing for a living. Uh, that's really funny stuff. And you know that the left is, uh, is eating its own when Stephen Colbert is taking on Rachel Maddow. Okay, time for a couple of things that I hate. So first off, a California elementary school has now banned TAG. Uh, apparently, they're concerned that it will hurt feelings and people are, uh, are getting hurt. They say, after four children in fourth and fifth grade at Gold Ridge Elementary in Folsom were deemed to have played the game with too much physical contact, all physical contact in the schoolyard was banned. The principal notified four parents their kids had been warned about being too rough. So today, we implemented new procedures at school aimed at reducing physical contact and related problem behaviors. Okay, if you think that you're going to stop little boys from pushing each other and punching each other and running around hitting each other, then you have never met a little boy. But it just demonstrates that, uh, Christina Hoff-Summers has said this, we are now making an, a full-scale societal attempt to treat little boys as though they are little girls. Like, they're going to sit around and talk to each other in little group circles, and uh, it ain't going to happen. Again, this is training a society of uncomfortable children who are unable to actually have fun on the playground, which is really stupid. Other things that I hate, uh, there's a rapper named Bow Wow, uh, which is just great. I guess he's the nephew to, uh, he's the nephew to Snoop Dogg, is how this works. And uh, Bow Wow is very upset that Donald Trump is upset with Snoop Dogg for threatening to kill Donald Trump in a video. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and so Bow Wow has now threatened to pimp Melania. It says, A-O, real Donald Trump, shut your punk ass up talking bleep about my uncle Snoop Dogg before we pimp your wife and make her work for us. Um, mm. Can you imagine if anybody on the right had ever said they wanted to pimp Michelle Obama? You know, like make her into a sex slave? Okay, this guy has not been banned from Twitter yet. This tweet is still up. It's amazing. Twitter will allow pretty much anything from the left, but they will allow a lot, a lot of things on the right they, they will not allow. They'll ban a lot of people who I find personally despicable, but you know have certainly not said stuff as bad as this. They banned Milo Yiannopoulos for doing stuff that was way, way less, you know, way less evocative than this. Uh, and, uh, but, but Bow Wow continues to have a verified Twitter account after saying that he wants to pimp the first lady of the United States because the, the president of the United States was upset with a video about his assassination from Snoop Dogg, demonstrating once again the double standard uh, from left and leftist corporations. Okay, a few entries from the mailbag. So, we begin today with Nicholas. He says, hey Ben, do you think the government should be funding space exploration and NASA, or do you think the money would be better spent on other things? Uh, so Nicholas, I actually do not think that the government should be behind space exploration and NASA. I think the private sector can do it. SpaceX is, uh, is actually doing a lot of the, the best private exploration of space that's happening right now. Uh, there is a lot of money to be made in space exploration. And the idea that the government has to be behind it, uh, I find foolish, unless it's for military purposes. If, you, if you're saying that we have to you know, explore space for military purposes, that's a different thing. But if you're saying that we ought to explore space just to explore space because we think space is cool, uh, no, I don't think the government actually has to be behind that. And, um, and this idea that you know, the greatest accomplishment of mankind was putting a man on the moon ever, 
and, and the suggestion that that shows that, that government is the greatest thing because government put a man on the moon. Uh, again, would a man have gone to the moon without government? Yeah, I do think a man would have gone to the moon without government eventually. It might not have happened as quickly because when you take up everybody's wealth and you dump it into a program designed to put a man on the moon, you can do it faster. And it is cool that we put a man on the moon and all. But the idea that that is a vital service that is provided under the Constitution of the United States don't see that, um, you know, unless you're talking about its possible military uses. And there are some, as as uh, Tr- as uh, Donald Trump's, uh, you know, I think he's talking about anti-missile programs that, that use space. Uh, that That's a military purpose. Patrick says, live, is it possible the new generation will be conservative by the way they see the left act now, or are they going to see it as the new normal? I do think that there is a possibility that the left is going to go so far that the next generation is going to react to that. And I think you're starting to see that on college campuses. I spoke at University of Redlands yesterday. We had uh, uh, 900 people paid to come to see it. And they would have filled up the balcony, too, except that the uh, the school wouldn't allow them to use the balcony because they were afraid for safety reasons, I guess. Um, but, yeah, there, there's a real backlash happening to the hard left in this country, uh, and it is threatening the, the ability of the left to control the next generation. Chapman says, hey, Ben, do you think a single-payer system in America is inevitable? It seems like Republicans are just giving up free markets because they don't want to look mean. Uh, do I think it's inevitable? I don't think anything is inevitable. Uh, as they say in Terminator 2, your fate is what you make of it. But... I do think that it is more likely than not that sometime in the next couple of decades you will see a, a strong move toward nationalized health care because once people think that an entitlement is on the table, they want more of the entitlement and they don't understand the downsides to a non-private market-based system. If you are going to have a private public system, then it should look more like Switzerland and less like what we currently have. Um, but I'm not of the view that people should be forced to buy health care under, under any circumstances anyway. Uh, nope, nope says, why is it that the assassination attempts aren't very well publicized? I got all the way through college without knowing Ronald Reagan, George Bush, and Bill Clinton had an assassination attempt on their lives. Well, I mean, we pay a lot more attention to successful terrorist attacks than failed terrorist attacks. Uh, We pay more attention to successful murders than we do to attempted murders. So, you know, I I don't think that, uh, you know, there have been assassination attempts on a bevy of presidents. Uh, There wasn't on Obama, as far as I know, but there there was on George W., there was on H.W., there was on Clinton, there was on Reagan, there was on... Uh, on Gerald Ford. I'm not aware if there was one on Jimmy Carter or not. Uh, obviously, the ones that succeed are the ones that, that we pay attention to. Uh, Andrew, do you think the left should have to use milk of the poppy to help with the pain and butthurt of Trump being president? Uh, well, since they do live in an alternative universe where Donald Trump is going to be not president, uh, may, maybe they live in Game of Thrones universe. That's, that's possible. Um, love me some Game of Thrones. Okay, John says, hey, Ben. I'm 26. My younger brother has autism. As he gets older, we are trying to figure out the best way to set up some future for him. What role do you think the government should have as far as taking care of the mentally handicapped? Well, I think that the private sector should fill as much of this as possible. I think charitable organizations exist that help people who have mental handicaps. I do think that there is a role for government uh, in taking in taking care of people who can't take care of themselves, you know, the, the people who are mentally disabled uh, and, there's a commu- and there's no community structure for them, uh, people who have, you know, violent schizophrenia, people who have serious mental illness. Uh, I've, I've called for a long time, actually, for additional state, uh, interv- additional state funding for people who are mentally ill. I think that's, that's one of the things that's been really troublesome because you're talking about here people who can't take care of themselves, not the same thing as a healthcare system where people can make fully informed decisions. Uh, Lizzie says, I'm a junior at a public high school. I was forced to take the ACT. To my dismay, it measured only a small subset of skills. To what extent, if any, do you think standardized testing is useful, and how should it in college admissions be reformed, if at all? Well, Lizzie, I think that that's why a lot of college admissions standards also include essays now, and they include uh, extracurriculars. But to pretend that the ACT and the SAT aren't important is to ignore the fact that they basically are are a, a small form IQ test. 
The truth is that the government doesn't allow people to give IQ tests in order to decide employment or college admissions, but that's basically what the SAT and the ACT are. There's very high correlation between how you do on these tests and how you measure on IQ tests, and uh, the government has attempted to get rid of IQ tests, so you end up with these bad proxies. Uh, Peter says, my name is Peter. I'm a transgender person. I think I might be the only conservative one out there. You're not actually, Peter. I get, actually, I believe it or not, I actually get letters all the time, almost every day, from transgender people who are conservative and have questions about my position on this. I was wondering if you had any advice for defending myself against liberals who call me a self-hating transphobic bigot simply because I don't think we as trans folks should get special privileges. And my advice is that just like I say to everyone in the United States, you don't have to care what other people think. You know, just because people on the left want you to be a certain way doesn't mean you have to be a certain way. Just because, you know, as a trans person, you think that my opinion is wrong doesn't mean you have to, you don't have to listen to me, right? You don't have to think that I'm right. You don't have the right to tell me what to think. You don't have the right to tell me what to say or what to do. But you have the right, certainly, to ignore me. And I think that if we all ignored each other a little bit more in certain ways, it might be a, a better thing. Uh, someone asks, how old will your, will your children be when you introduce them to guns? Uh, yeah, honestly, you know, it's not something that I have uh, thought about too much yet because they're still really little. One's three and one's ten months. And we do have a gun safe. if we keep the, the guns locked up, obviously. And away from the kitties. Uh, but I, I'd want to talk to some of my friends over at the NRA and see what they advise uh, on that. Okay, final question here. Jeffrey says, hey, Ben, do you believe in general love and marriage should be unconditional, as is said during a wedding? The logical side of me says no, but the forever alone part of me who hopes to get married one day says yes. To me, there are acts one can do which aren't deserving of love and can't strip that away. If, in your opinion, love is conditional, could you get behind a protest to abolish the dialogue from wedding ceremonies? Um, well, I don't think that the wedding ceremony, t its language says unconditional. It says, in sickness and health, for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse. I don't think that's unconditional. I don't think it says if your wife goes and nails the entire Stanford football team, for example. So, you know, the idea that love is unconditional uh, is a leftist conceit. Love is not unconditional. God's love for mankind is unconditional. Your love for your child until they're responsible for themselves is unconditional. The love for, of adults for other adults, that is not unconditional because behavior decides whether you, are, whether you are deserving of love. You should deserve love. You shouldn't rely on other people's kindness to bring you that love. Okay, before we finish... Last thing, I promise, that is, uh, I, I do have another joke for you. I have a joke to, to conclude the week. So, a fat guy is sitting on a plane, uh, and he's smoking a cigar, and next to him is a lady, and she has a little dog, and the little dog starts barking. And the fat guy with the cigar, he says, you know, lady, can you shut up the dog? And she says, yes, but please put out the cigar. So he puts out the cigar, and she shuts up the dog. A few minutes later, the dog starts barking again, so he lights up his cigar again. And, uh, and the lady says, can you put out that cigar? And he says, shut up your dog. She shuts up the dog, he puts out the cigar. The dog starts barking again, so he lights up his cigar again. And, uh, and the dog just won't stop barking, so he takes the dog, he opens the window of the plane, he throws the, the dog out the window of the plane. She takes his cigar, and in a fit of rage, she throws that out of the plane as well. And then, oddly enough, she looks out the window, and there, on the wing of the plane, is the dog. And what do you think is in the, the dog's mouth? The brick. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So 
I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving. 